What's up, everybody? I'm Nick. I'm here with Ryan and Mark, and we are Bible Dingers. We have a very educational episode for you today. In case this is the first time you're ever interacting with the topic of Calvinism, this is definitely the episode you want to listen to mm-hmm. because we have a special guest on the show. What yes, yes. I, sorry, I said yes exactly when you were about to say yes. something. Why don't you tell us who he is, Brian? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, so we have yes. Dr. Michael Horton on the show today. And... Uh, it gets a little loud there in the middle, doesn't it? Yeah. It's okay. They're getting more and more excited <laughs> yeah. as they continue to clap. That's true. In anticipation of this interview. So Dr. Horton has taught apologetics and theology at Westminster Seminary, California since 1998. In addition to his work at the seminary, he is founder and editor-in-chief of White Horse Incorporated, home to its namesake, The White Horse Inn Radio Show and Podcast, Modern Reformation Magazine, Core Christianity, and the Global Theological Initiative. Dr. Horton received his master's at Westminster in 1990 and went on to earn his PhD from the University of Oxford in 96. He completed a research fellowship at Yale from 96 to 98, and in 2016, he was awarded an honorary Doctor of Divinity from Grove City College. He's a member of various societies, including the American Academy of Religion and the Evangelical Theological Society. Dr. Horton is the author and or editor of more than 30 books, including a series of studies in Reformed dogmatics published by Westminster John Knox. His most recent books are Justification, Volumes 1 and 2, New Studies in Dogmatics, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, God's Perfecting Presence in Creation, Redemption in Everyday Life, Core Christianity, finding yourself in God's story. So we had Dr. Michael Horton on, and we're doing this this small soteriology series after the book of Romans, because as we know, and as we mentioned in the episode, Romans 8 through 10 has a lot of uh, soteriological language, and there's a lot of debate and confusion. And so in this episode, we are going to be talking about Calvinism with Dr. Michael Horton. Horton. So the audio at times goes in and out, but we get the picture. The picture. You, you know what? You know what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, guys. Well, it's, just it's, get over it. It's about the content. Deal with it. You know what that is? No. Zoom. It's people getting the picture. <laughs> okay. Oh. All right. Anyways, guys, hope you enjoy this interview. Bible dinger. He told us all that to die is to gain. So I crucify me to follow his name. And in Christ who lives through me, life's not the same. Cause I've been renewed. He changed my name. So now it's ready to go. Torn between the two to say. I long to go be with the one who put this burning fire in me. And now I see the way he wants me. Alright, good to be with you guys. It's an honor to yeah. have you, honestly. Yeah, it's a it's a big honor, Dr. Horton. We appreciate you taking some time to talk to us. I know you are a busy man. Well, I'm glad to do it. So I wanted to go ahead and really just start us off by seeing if you could just give us just a basic overview of the five points of Calvinism, what they are, and what they mean. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, really, the so-called TULIP, or five points of Calvinism, um, uh, that was formulated 
around the turn of the 20th century in America. So the five points don't go all the way back to the Synod of Dort, which in 1619 was the, the Dutch Reformed Church's response to uh, Arminianism. So the, the remonstrants or Arminians who were remonstrating, they presented to the church uh, of the Netherlands a, a series of points, five points. And then the Synod of Dort with delegates from the Church of England and churches in Hungary and France and elsewhere uh, issued their response. And I would encourage people to go back and look at the canons of the Synod of Dort for uh, a full statement of the position. Uh, it's a lot better than, you know, we like to reduce everything down to five points and it's not always that uh, accurate. For instance, uh, total depravity. People often think total depravity means that we're as bad as we can possibly be. You know, we're just totally wrecked. That's not what total depravity really means. It's not a very good term if people don't understand it. It means comprehensive depravity, that there's no landing place in us for the gospel. Uh, when Christ comes to us, he finds no safe place to land. He's got to create a new heart. He has to give us new life. And so he's chosen to do that from all eternity. Um Unconditional election, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 4, um, predestined to be his sons and daughters, uh, verse 5. And then um, limited atonement is a horrible term. Limited, you know, I, I believe as a Calvinist that uh, it, it, it actually secures the salvation of all who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Does it make salvation possible? It secures it. Uh, and so uh, uh, I prefer the term particular redemption. Redemption particularly, uh, you know, the great, one of the, the helpful phrases from the Middle Ages, because this was taught by Thomas Aquinas and others, uh, was that the, the, the work of Christ is sufficient for the world, but efficient for the elect. And then there's irresistible grace. What a horrible term. Um, irresistible grace, it sounds like God is coercing us. And that's mm. not what uh, we believe as Calvinists. We believe that he draws us, he regenerates our hearts so that we want to come. And then perseverance of the saints is a great term. Uh, sometimes we also call it preservation of God. Uh, because, uh, you know, God, we only work and will for his good pleasure. Uh, he he is at work in us to complete that which he has begun. So really, from start to finish, the basic point of these points is that God does all the saving. God is the God is the Savior, and we are the saved. Awesome, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I'd just follow up with this, since the foundation of the five points is God's sovereignty. And, and God's election and predestination, um, then if all people that are elect are, are guaranteed to go to heaven via irresistible grace, a term that you don't like, but um, then what's the point of missions and evangelism? That's a great question, Nick. Uh, I would put, pose the question this way. If God isn't sovereign, why missions and evangelism? Because the 
the, the human situation is so grave that, literally grave, no one is going to answer the call. Okay, that's our situation. We are Ezekiel 37. We're the Valley of Dry Bones. Um, Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 5. We, were, we are dead in trespasses and sins. But while you were dead in sin, Paul says, God made you alive together in Christ. By grace, you are saved. So it's not because, um, you know, we have this, it's a dim light, but there's a little light left. Uh, for us to respond to God. No, we can do things that other people approve, but we can't believe in God. We can't trust in Jesus Christ. We're in a situation of helpless, hopeless darkness, spiritual death. So I would be, you know, I do, I do missions and evangelism myself, and I would really have little hope of any success. Ah, no hope of any success, if I were not confident that the one to whom I prayed, the one I asked, Lord, open their hearts. When I preach your gospel, open their hearts to receive it. I couldn't pray that prayer if I didn't believe God actually could do that, that God didn't have to be invited to do that, that God just does that. That is why I don't despair when I am talking to people who don't know the Lord Jesus. But if that's the case, then isn't God going to do it anyway? No. No, I mean, he could, but Scripture tells us, and we're limited to the Scriptures, of course. Scripture tells us that God works through means. Um, God rarely works directly and immediately. He loves to work with creatures, things that he's made. He, he loves to get things done through, through people. And so he has, he has made us um, co-workers. I mean, isn't that an amazing thing that Paul calls himself and other uh, preachers of the gospel co-workers with God? We are actually co-workers with God because God is the one who makes people alive, but he does it through the preaching of the gospel. Uh, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10. Uh, How shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? So that's the logic that that Paul gives for it. If faith comes by hearing, we need a preacher. And if they're going to have preachers, they need to be sent. I have a question. Um, So going more along the lines of the elect and how all that works, um, so when we look at verses like John 3.16, you know, it says, for God so loved the world. It doesn't say for God so loved the elect. So um, how do we make sense of that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so it's marvelous that God so loved the world that he didn't leave it in it to itself, uh, but that he had a plan of redemption. And then we get all the other passages that tell us that that plan of redemption is anchored in eternity past when God chose many out of the world uh, to be saved. And so I I read that just at its face value. God so loved the world. I would put it this way. God so loved the world that, now thinking of other verses, that he chose people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and people and nation from the world to be saved. 
So, you know, like the, the Olympics, uh, the world is represented at the Olympics, but that doesn't mean every single human being is in the stadium. Uh, God has chosen people from every time, every place, every culture, every tongue. And that is the representative humanity. That is the, that, that is the saved world. But I don't think that, that John is saying there that God so loved the elect. I think he's saying God so loved the world, the whole world, that he didn't let the whole world perish, but already had a plan for how he was going to rescue an innumerable representative race from humanity uh, from the beginning to the end. I like that. And I like how um, it seems very inclusive because I think people who are kind of opposed to Calvinism feel as if Calvinism can tend to be maybe exclusive. But when you put it in those terms, it is inclusive. When you bring to mind the fact that he's bringing people from all nations, all tongues, all over the world, that the elect is almost all inclusive uh, of, of yeah. course, of different nations and tongues. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's, that is such an important point, Ryan, because it's not election is not God keeping people out who want in. It's God deciding, determining to bring people into the blessedness of everlasting life with him who don't want that until their hearts are changed. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, that's a good point. So Nick kind of hit on the, I guess, the unconditional election part of the the infamous tulip, right? And then I guess Mark followed up with, uh, I guess, a limited atonement question. And so I kind of want to hit on the perseverance of the saints part. Um, and I wanted to ask about, about losing your salvation or not. And I wanted to ask what your opinion is on people who have sort of, they say they're Christians and then later on in their life, they appear to have fallen away from faith. So like recently in the news, of course, we have the Ravi Zacharias thing, the Carl Lentz thing. Um, and then a couple years back, we have the kiss dating goodbye guy and all these people who are not only Christians, but Christian leaders. And then later on in their life, they appear to have sort of fallen away from the faith. So what would you say about that? And how do you sort of reconcile that with the perseverance to the saints? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, John tells us in his first epistle, uh, uh, they went from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Um, you know, Paul says, God finishes what he starts. The good work he began in you, he will complete to the day of salvation. But there are a lot of, a lot of people who are part of the visible church. Uh, they are uh, baptized. They they are, hear the word of God. I think of Hebrews six, particularly that warning passage about those who have been and once had been enlightened, and that was early church speak for baptism. Uh, it was called the sacrament of enlightenment. Uh, they have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift. I think that's the Lord's supper. Uh, and have tasted of the powers of the word of God, power of the word of God, and of the age to come. You see, through preaching and the, and baptism and the Lord's Supper, the age to come is actually breaking in on this present evil age. And so, I, I, on that passage, Calvin calls this uh, the 
the general operations of the Holy Spirit in the church that touch the, uh, uh, those who are not regenerate, even even children of believers who are you know rebelling against the faith, um, they are recipients of God's promise. Uh, you know, and that's where the five points is too reductionistic in in the reformed uh, uh, view of things. You know, we bring our children to be baptized because we believe that they are entitled to the promise. Uh, just as as Abram, uh, Abraham uh, circumcised Isaac, but there's, you know, uh, there's Esau, uh, uh, there's Ishmael, and then the, then there's Jacob and, and Esau, uh, and so God still has the prerogative to save whom He will, but we bring our children to baptism with the promise that God is going to to then and there signify and seal his promise to them. Now, what happens when they fall away? Well, Hebrews 6 says they've been baptized. They even have been admitted to the Lord's Supper. Taste, notice he doesn't, he's using these these verbs, taste, not drink. They've tasted. He says that, he says it's like, it's like uh, a bush, that that where rain falls on it constantly, but it never bears fruit. That is a person who grows up in the church, maybe even becomes a leader in the church, but then later falls away. But I love what he says, but I am convinced of better things in your case, brothers, things that accompany salvation. See? So there are th- there are gifts that that are here for the taking. I mean, people grow up with these gifts that unbelievers, you know, a Hindu or Muslim uh, or atheist or agnostic person growing up in, in a home like that, they don't have these benefits. But wow, here's somebody growing up in the church entitled to these blessings, but he never receives it. That's Hebrews 4 through 6, you know. Don't be like the, the, the fathers in the wilderness who never entered the the rest of God. You get right to the verge, you get right to the edge, and then you grumble and you complain and you walk away. That happens in the church, unfortunately, quite frequently. And that means that there are there are sheep without and wolves within. There are there are the regenerate believers in the church, and then there are unregenerate professors, people who may profess the faith, but do not really cling to Christ. I guess I'll follow up with this. I have a tremendous amount of family and friends who I love dearly that are not saved. Mm-hmm. It, they, they don't love Christ. They don't accept him. Um, and this whole conversation is about election and predestination. So if God is electing people to go to heaven. Is it a safe assumption to say that those people who I love so much are predestined and elected to go to hell? No. <laughs> yeah, great question, Nick. Uh yes, I think if God doesn't if God chooses you, uh that just that by definition means there are other people he hasn't chosen to be saved. Uh and 
you know, the, the picture that Paul gives in Romans 9 is that there's one lump of condemned humanity, and out of that lump, he has chosen some to be saved and make vessels of mercy, and he's chosen to use the rest as vessels of wrath to display his righteousness and justice. Now, the reason I said no is because, Nick, you can't know whether your loved ones are elect or not elect, uh, at least until they die. If they if they don't profess Christ um, and they enter into, you know, it's appointed for man wants to die and then comes the judgment, the, it, until then, you have no idea whether they're elect or not. I've, I have visited people on their deathbed a few times where the family was convinced they weren't saved. And, you know, we had this conversation, and here they are right at the twilight of their life, and they, you read a passage to them, and a light bulb comes on, and they say, you know, basically, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe that person's going into, you know, uh, will be with Jesus that day in paradise. Um, we just don't know. So here's what I do, Nick. I say, when I see anybody who is an unbeliever, I mean, you know, uh, the, the most vicious anti-Christian person I meet, most hostile to the gospel, I look at them and I say, you know what? I'm assuming you are going to have a great testimony. I am assuming you are going to glorify God witnessing to his amazing grace in Jesus Christ. Look, I don't know. I don't. So if I don't know if somebody's elect or non-elect, how should I treat them? I'll treat them as, as if they're elect and they will come to saving faith through your witness and through your prayers, and maybe not yours, but somebody else's. Oh, it's so freeing. It's so liberating. It liberates us to actually talk to people about Christ because we know it's not in our hands. What's in our hands is to talk, talk to them about Christ, knowing that God uses that to bring them to a saving knowledge of his son. I, I do want to just, uh, just follow up with a, a question within that question. Because I think that this question is the reason why people dislike Calvinism. And I want to give you an opportunity to speak on it and bring clarity to this specific point, because I want others to know what the truth is, according to your perspective. So let's say those people who I witness to and assume, like you say, that God's going to work through them, and I continue to work in them, and they die. And they never turn to Christ. Mm -hmm. Is it a safe assumption? That God has said, all right, you're elected, you're predestined to hell. And when they died, they went to hell and there was no real hope for them to begin with because their plan was already sealed. Well, yeah, but the plan was already sealed uh, in the with the fact that they are part of the same lump that we're a part of. It's all one lump of condemned humanity. So when when God chose us for salvation, uh, he, he didn't go through the phone book and say, you know, you, 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 he, here's a, uh, he, he knew that the, the, that, and, and decreed to permit 
for reasons unknown to us, the but for his glory, the fall, uh, he allowed Adam to exercise his free will. Yes, we do believe in free will. Adam, Adam and Eve had free will. Uh, they could go one way or the other by nature. They weren't yet bound in sin as we are. They weren't dead in trespasses and sins. They had free will. And they misused it. And Adam was our covenant head. And because we're all born in original sin, we're in a situation where there is no salvation for anyone unless God moves, unless God makes a decision to act in this situation. He could have let the whole human race perish in Adam. Uh, so when we look at it that way, God is choosing people from a condemned mass of humanity to be saved. God isn't just blindly, arbitrarily uh, saying, I'm going to save people and, and reprobate people without any reference to their deserts. Everybody deserves hell when God chooses them. They're in that. God, you know, for God, there is no before and after. He, eternally, he sees everything eternally. And he says, out of this condemned mass, I'm going to make a bride for my son. And uh, that is the, the condition. So we're responsible for rejecting Christ. Uh, we're responsible to embrace Christ, but we're not responsible for that embrace. That's a gift of God. Okay, so um, all of this kind of kind of brings us to this final question, and we just want to ask, you know, with all that being said, is this a primary issue for Christians? Like, is there a common ground for Calvinists and Arminians to, um, you know, reconcile their differences and fellowship inside one church building? <laughs> uh well, that's a that's a very good question. I think, you know, it's interesting out on the mission field, um you do find people who are uh Calvinists and Arminians uh sometimes worshiping together because uh their their common bond is the Lord Jesus Christ and there are plenty of people, listen, a person can have really what I believe is unbiblical doctrine. And nevertheless when they put their head on their pillow at night and trust their salvation to Christ alone. Now, I might say Arminianism does not, it, it, it undermines Christ alone. It undermines the sufficiency of Christ's work. It undermines that it's by grace alone uh, that even faith is a gift. I can, I, I, I can argue those points, but a lot of times people's People's belief in their heart is is better than, than the doctrine they articulate. But I would say in a in a church, you know, uh, I belong to a Reformed church where we have a confession and a catechism, and the whole church signs on to it. The church says we believe that the ecumenical creeds and our confession state what the Bible says on the most important points. And so that did, that determines for me what is essential and basically the 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 roof I can live under 
Now, there are other Christians uh, who have a different confession, but the same doctrine. Then there are other groups that have major differences from our confession, but they still confess that basic core of salvation by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. And then there are groups that don't confess that core. And so we have to wrestle with that and say, you know, what what kind of agreement can we come to on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And my good friend Roger uh, Olson, uh, we he he's an Arminian uh, Baptist theologian. Uh, we've we've had some great interactions, and uh, you know. He is much more of an evangelical Arminian than a lot of the preachers out there. He even says most of what goes under the name Arminian in popular preaching in America today is at least semi-Pelagian, if not outright Pelagian. It's not Arminian. And so I can reach over to, to, to Roger and shake his hand and say, wow, we have a lot that we can share in common and proclaim in common uh, against that man-centered religion that is so pervasive in American culture today. That's awesome. And I love how you, you bring it all together in the end and really kind of remind us that it's really about Christ and faith and grace and Christ. Um, so if people are interested in this topic or they want to find more of your works or anything like that, where can they go to to find out more about you? Well, they can go to corechristianity.com. Uh and and there are a lot of there there are a lot of materials there. Um it's also a radio program and podcast. Um and they could also uh you know pick up my book For Calvinism and read Roger Olson's Against Calvinism and sort of see both sides there. I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. I'm a huge fan of your work, and it's really an honor to speak with you and, and get to know you, and I hope you get back on the show. Well, it's an honor to speak with you guys. Really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much. You bet. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Horton. We really appreciate it. You yeah, bet. It was good talking Take to care. you. You never ceased to amaze when I was drifting away. I knew that I had a place, you still kept me You remind me that I'm not alone Long as you're with me, I know I'm home Cause you pick me up from out of the dirt And you give me feelings I don't deserve You gave me your love when I didn't earn it